This conversation on collecting features Andrew Atwood, Laurel Broughton, Andrew Kovacs, Jimenez Lai, Michael Loverich, Anna Niemark, and James Tate. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. We'll start with this bit from Andrew Kovacs on his own methods of collecting, which he uses to compile his well-known archive of affinities. Andrew browses books, journals, and old media of the past in search of things that he likes or things that have relationships with each other. Most of what he publishes to his blog have not been uploaded to the internet previously. So that, you know, that would be this kind of thing, archive of affinities, where it's sort of going through a number of things and collecting, you know, floor plans, elevations, sections, but also images of buildings, Im- Im- images of buildings that are like other buildings. So, so, so for, in a way, for me, what's at stake there is to kind of understand and also to understand maybe what the discipline of architecture is, but also to refine my own sensibilities of what I like or what I appreciate or what I sort of value. And that's maybe more with things in books and magazines. And then there are the other things which are the objects that I kind of collect, which I would say are sort of small models or, you know, I appreciate them for their forms or their inherent references, whatever they might be. And so I would argue that those objects that I collect, they have some kind of architectural quality of either mass, form, proportion, color, texture, etc. That's a kind of newer facet of the collecting, so I'll, I'll take those and I'll scan those. In some ways, all of the stuff is kind of disposable or readily available at the same time. But so from the images, I'll, re- I'll, you know, I'll use them in a number of ways. I'll use them to set up an argument in a presentation or a lecture. I'll use them to recombine them into other... So I'll take a lot of old plans and make a new plan, or a lot of old elevations and make a new elevation as a kind of proposal. Or with the objects, I'll recompose them either digitally or physically into proposals for architecture, for pro- proposals for... You know, and the, the more extreme they get, the sort of sometimes more messy they get. These next four clips will feature James, Laurel, Jimenez, and Michael talking about their habits of collecting and how it influences their work. Uh, I collect a lot of things. I mean, I collect everything from... I, I collect a lot of different drawings. I have on my computer folders that are dedicated to kind of square plans, round plans, polygon plans. I have folders that then sort them in terms of are they wall-based, are they column-based. When I did the fellowship project every day for a year, I collected one triumphal arch. It's from some moment in time somewhere in the world, whether drawn or built. Uh, yeah, I'm constantly collecting things. And, and trying to find ways to look at them. I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how, how would you either abstract them? It ties into a subconscious interest in types, in like the relationship between parts, between holes, between like how we put things together. I'm really interested in, in the difference between the, the Pantheon and then how the Pantheon moves and changes as as different architects pick it up. I actually have a, I've been over the summer collecting different plan drawings of the Pantheon. 
and really curious about the the differences between how how Serlio draws it, how Palladio draws it, how Grand Tour architects drew it, how it's being drawn today. Those things kind of sit in my head. The thing that I do not have that I know a lot of my colleagues have are image collections that I just never got into keeping some kind of catalog of stolen images. But I do think of the sort of idea of the collection does play a big role in my practice in a couple of senses. One is that I collect objects and I but I would say in a certain way I'm a kind of dilettante collector. Like just in a personal sense, I have many started collections of little kind of groups of things. I guess I my attention span is too limited to say like only that I only collect paper airplanes or something something like that. But I have collections of say representations of food in plastic of you know a, a whole bunch of varieties which definitely gets repurposed into my work and I think one of the things that I'm interested in objects that I collect are when the objects have a kind of iconic representation of something so like I think of like a that a pill is a oval that's half blue and half white and that becomes a kind of that's like a generic representation like everyone who sees that is like oh that's a pill even though I don't think I've ever seen a real pill that's half (laughs) half blue and half white but those are the types of things that I get kind of interested in in collecting and then that gets those things get kind of repurposed into my own work in different ways. Sometimes there's a kind of wholesale, there's a pill that's half blue and half white, and sometimes in, you know, less obvious ways. But the other thing is that in my, in the work with what we could call the Welcome Companions Project, I mean, that that's a place where there is a very literalness of the idea of of the collection, not so much a collection as something that you're pulling from outside, but more uh, that you're actually, or I'm actually producing a collection of stuff, which is a kind of inversion of a curatorial type of collection stance. And then for me, it becomes super interesting within each of the each of the kind of collections. What are the kind of characteristics of each collection? How far can things within a single collection actually be apart from each other, but still be kind of read as the as the group? And I think in a certain way, with the Welcome Companions, my interest is always more in the group of the objects that I'm making than actually in the individual ones. And so I'm super into the kind of relationships. And if, if we, if I don't have one of the objects, then that, how does that affect the reading of the group of objects? But then I would say also in my other work, the idea of collection for me translates 
again into a kind of interior production thing where it becomes I'm interested in the construction of a world which is a kind of collection and it's about the relationships that get created in between different disparate things. A long time ago I had this friend Tudor he said something really funny he said uh, it's never who you are but who you're with and I think that's a really interesting thought because I, this idea has never occurred to me. It's not, never who you are, but who you're with. It also meant that, you know, uh, to choose your friends carefully and also be around the kind of people that you wish you were. And so to collect names or collect things that you admire began, began to become a kind of healthy habit, I think. Because yourself, like, who cares in a way? Like, it's not that important, but then you can, you can respect others and find um, virtues and friends and so of course yeah so i began to gravitate towards people that i think are interesting like atwood for example and kovacs for example you know holder as well like you know and Mahila. like they're, they're people that i just gravitate towards because i think they they display uh, certain types of greatness that I, I just don't have let's say that's one type of collection and, and i i guess in terms of you know the beachside lonely hearts or the cave painting projects it's it's just it's similar. Like I think what I just said is it probably holds true. You know, if I want to draw like Bernard Schumi, or if I admire you know Daniel Libeskind's early career, why wouldn't I try to sit in the driver's seat? So a long time ago, I, I used to do this exercise, where you know because I I I have trouble reading, but I used to just simply like type the whole book. Uh, you know, if if I if I really needed to. Have, have it in my head and I'll just type it and it was healthy you know because it, it made me feel like I'm in the driver's seat I'm just pretending to be, to be the author for a bit and so therefore the writing technique is suddenly you know very immediate to trace a history uh, or trace you know a person's uh, techniques of course you know I would I would I would really then try to draw uh, with Rossi or uh, Haydeck uh, I mean Again, the people that I, I admire, you know, that that possess qualities that I, I wish I had. And, and the Beachside Lonely Heart, I think it became, that that was kind of a, an exercise uh, for me to not look at references and see how much made, how much remained. So uh, 2014, 2015, I, I guess I went on the streak of uh, drawing, I guess, a lot. For the cave painting series that I did for the Art Institute of Chicago, it was very important to me that none of the drawings, or none of the lines, were mine. Like, so those, that, that triptych, it was super important that, you know, I didn't insert myself in there anywhere. Like, so every single last stroke I, I borrowed from somebody else. And so that was, what, 20, 24 feet by four feet. That's a pretty long surface area for, for me to not, to repress, you know, like the uh, insertion of self. But Beach Light Lonely Hearts was the complete inverse. Uh, I was just thinking, okay, now that I've done that, now that I've really kind of took it in, so to speak. Um, I'll, I'll do a homework assignment in some ways to see like what has it changed me in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, has it changed the way that I compose lines or compose fields? Um, I, I would say it did. Like I think I, after force feeding myself into the driver's seat and uh, letting myself like type the author's words uh, word for word almost, I, I began to draw better. And I think this, this exercise as a homework assignment has made me a better architect. I'm, I'm kind of excited about the next things I'll be designing. Again, when 
we were studying the Rococo, there is, in that sort of era, this idea of the curiosity cabinet, or cabinet of curiosities. There is this kind of interesting idea about collecting strange things that was going on at that time. And then working with those collections and integrating them into the architecture, integrating it into some sort of environment that was bigger than the whole, I guess. So for us, you know, the, the kind of repetitive baby stuffed animals or stuffed animals in general, that was one way of kind of dealing with this interest in animal forms as well as uh, interior design and plush cushions and stuff like that, but turning it into, you know, a collection of objects that then began to transform the space. I mean, I, I think that kind of fed into also sort of a different way of strategizing about overall architectural massing and form. We weren't trying to solve issues with single elements or single surfaces, which you know, we were coming from in school a lot, but not necessarily worried about continuity of elements, but working with collection of different things. I mean, we used to say mashup all the time in terms of describing our projects, just as we would kind of bring together totally di different aspects and then try and find the similarities between them and bring them together So, and make it work. But we do still have like an interest in trying to combine these things together to make a little bit of continuity, but we aren't really necessarily about like harsh juxtapositions. We do kind of want there to be some merging. In contrast to what we've heard in this conversation so far, First Office, in their own words, have no interest in collecting. In this next part, we'll hear about why that is, and we'll also hear about how the collection has become the new model for architectural exhibitions. Collection, I think of it in several ways. One is broad and surface, which is kind of Pinterest collection. We don't do that. We don't do broad surface. We don't look at many things at once and juxtapose them to each other. Another type of collection, which you mentioned, is archival research. We don't do that. We're not historians. We don't know how to step into an archive and to actually understand its depth and its singularity, let's say. So we, we don't do that either. Uh, we simply do not collect. We do not even collect our own work. Meaning we throw out our own stuff. I mean, I think all... Like we threw out all our own models, and now we're in sort of trouble because people are actually asking where those models are. I had this uh, genius idea last I'm year. I'm opposed to it. Is all I can say. I don't. I, I have. We have very good friends that are invested in that project. One of them is really good at it. He kind of does it, but it, it exists as a kind of really. It, it exists, and it kind of. I can only. It's like one line of working, and there are people that do it, and we just don't do that. I, I just agree with Anna to the point where I, like anything that sort of deals with posterity or even reeks of it makes me nauseous. I hate it. I don't like people taking my picture at shows. I don't like any of that stuff. Um, and I certainly don't want to spend a lot of time and money storing old models, you know, so we don't even collect our own work. Listen, clearly you know that, that, that these terms are like loaded, but like collection is the worst. A year ago when we had to close down the office, we were faced with the question of throwing away things versus uh, storing them. And I think we spent some time to try to understand how to build some boxes. So we had this idea that actually producing an archive could be a conceptual project, that we could maybe uh, box up some models, put some pictures of these models on top of the boxes, and kind of put them in some sort of storage space. 
had we done that, it would have been brilliant because now there are a couple of opportunities in this year where we were asked to put together exhibitions of our, let's say, what was called early years, right? So uh, I, I know we're still in our early years, but there is uh, out there, I think, a reaction to shows that are understood to be installation shows, meaning an architect is asked to produce a uh, unique work of architecture within a very specific uh, gallery and that thing gets a budget thrown at it that is too small, a time schedule thrown at it that is too limited, zero labor force, etc. And uh, quite frankly, having, you know, and this, this kind of debate was probably triggered by Sylvia Levin's article in Art Forum Against the Pavilion, it seemed that the installation model was coming to an end. And so now the new model is the model of collection. There's this idea that we're going to no longer do exhibitions about singular works of sculptural architecture. We're now going to do curatorial projects of things that go or don't go together around broad themes or singular themes. I don't know what they are. And, and that also includes not only, not, not only curated exhibitions by historians of architecture, but also by architects themselves. So what we have noticed at least this year is uh, it, there, has been, there have been a couple of uh, requests to try to position exhibitions around this idea of collected works. We don't know how to deal with it right now. We're probably facing a year of reworking projects, rebuilding models that we threw out. It means necessarily that there, these projects are going to change. And uh, we think that that's probably a good thing, meaning every time we have built something, we have made a model of that project after the fact. Every time something got photographed, we made a model from the photograph. So, you know, the way in which we work probably isn't so dissimilar from thinking about producing a kind of collection. But, you know, as Andrew mentioned, as a starting point for a project, it has never been an interest of ours. Following on Anna's comments about the collection as architectural exhibition, we thought it would be appropriate to play this clip from James Tate. We were curious about the installation that he made as a part of his fellowship at the University of Michigan last year, a sort of pile of architectural things. The work didn't declare itself as such, but it had the quality of a collection. One of the things that I think was important in that, in that collection are the different kind of scales of, of collecting and the relationships between those different things. Andrew Holder, on I think two different reviews last year, said it in the only way that Andrew Holder probably could, but he, he called it the, the theory of the Christmas tree. Because I think, I think we, a lot of us are trying to figure out, you know, as you're collecting things, I think how you put them together, not just as, in, one could call it curation, but it, it's also, architects are, are, I think, obsessed with organizing things in different ways. And hopefully the, the kind of spaces inside of the things that you organize and the spaces between the things that you organize, the kind of formal qualities of those organization, those different strategies, I think, there's something in our kind of training that makes us obsess over that. Something I wanted to test out in that project was the way in which the big foam arch was made up of a series of stereotomic pieces. 
that Sir Leo had drawn of triumphal arches, so trying to assemble those different stereotomic parts into making those, even though they were from different arches, to try to make bring them together to become a kind of, they were the kind of equivalent of the Christmas, of the tree, and then the legibility of some of the models that were kind of almost ready-made um, reproductions of of some of the models, whether they were the the Venturi Scott Brown sign from Las Vegas that they associate with being kind of the American equivalent to the Triumphal Arch, so the billboard. So for me, I given that the Serlio foam blocks were abstracted from being able to read them as as a kind of a single triumphal arch i really wanted the those reproductions to look like they came from the model shops of of these different offices and i wanted them to actually have a very literal reading as as if i had gone if i had, if i had visited aldo rossi's office if i had visited venturi scott brown and and they loaned me those those models for the show and it had nothing to do with historicism it had everything to do with the idea of, of almost bringing those models from those practices into the architecture school and and putting them putting them together in a conversation on this this uh this other arch that i had built with the robot using the hot wire foam cutter so i, I wanted to start to put those in conversation and then finally there were the pile of parts that were all scattered at the at the base, which allowed for anyone who came into the the installation to pick up parts and to kind of produce their own object and put it onto the uh, onto the onto the arch, the larger arch itself. By picking up those parts, you were you were able to form a, a kind of collective uh, contribution to the work, and so those different scales of collecting and kind of defamiliarizing, sometimes and then on the other end, exaggerating its legibility, I think allowed for people to access the project on a variety of levels. My relationship to collage is is one where if we look at collage in its kind of last guise in architecture, it was really about the harsh juxtaposition of this thing to another thing. I think one of the things that the last 20 years, if, if everything was about kind of seamlessly blending things in that during that moment, I think one of the things that I'm kind of thinking about right now when I put one part next to another part, you know, how can I actually get qualities of, of, from both of those things? So, so where, where does the abrupt either superimposition or putting two things next to each other that don't, that don't align, like where, where is that actually producing a certain set of relationships? And then where, and then where do you smooth over? Like if, if we think of it spectrally, like how does one actually achieve qualities of both, and how do you how do you move within that spectrum? And I'm finding myself in a place not like absolutely in the middle. From project to project, it, it moves kind of slants to one side or the other. It's not so much about the novelty of 
of putting this strange thing next to another thing that it that it that it otherwise wouldn't have. But how how do you get those things to negotiate? And I mean that's where I mean I think that that's a that's a a question that's on the table for a lot of people right now. Moving the conversation from models to images, Laurel has made over 2,000 posts on Instagram under the same name as her design practice, Welcome Projects. Her posts share a certain sensibility toward the image. They typically have the quality of a one-liner and are often accompanied by a blunt description or a joke. We asked her about how she cultivates this sensibility and how this collection of images relates to her design work. It's a kind of, yeah, it's a kind of working collection of things very much that I happen upon and the things that I happen to be interested in or the veracity by which I'm documenting things changes over time. Yeah, I mean, there is an inherent sensibility in those things and it, and definitely in the comment, which is typically I'm pointing out something in the image that which would be the reason why I was taking the you know the photo in the first place and I I would say that those actually they have a that sensibility or kind of point of view I mean it's that's very much a part of like my larger work I guess you could say it's like seeing not taking the things just for face value and I would say I'm I'm drawn to things that name themselves you know I guess it would be a way of when the door says door. Like, there's something to me that's super interesting about that. Now, the rest of this chapter on collecting comes from Andrew Kovacs, whose work is focused on the acts of browsing, accumulating, and curating. So not surprisingly, he simply had a lot to say about collecting. Attention asked him what his criteria is, how he decides what makes it into his archive, and what is excluded. Well, I, um... It's not anything goes. The simplest way would be um, something that I like. So, and of course that means nothing to you. I think that there are certain forms that I appreciate more, you know, you know, very, very sort of clear, legible forms. But, you know, then at the same time, those clear, legible forms, when they get to a certain quantity, they become illegible or so there's a kind of game at play or a game being played there that you know things could be legible at one level but then kind of when composed with a certain quantity of other things they kind of lose their legibility like for let me just like think about for floor plans so in just collecting floor plans i'm really just like looking at how the floor plan is organized what is its kind of overall shape uh, is there an overall shape? So, you know, of course I have maybe a predilection for very simple forms like squares, but it's amazing how many different ways you can organize a square or how many different ways you can organize a circle. And, of course, you know, that is just within the boundary of a square or a circle, but and that the, the size of that or the scale of that can be changed. So it could be a square as a house or a square as a city or, you know, a square is a large building. I think also when looking for objects, you know, one, one kind of surface of the object might have a, a square footprint, you know, or it's just also looking, you know, if it's more uh, photographs of building, it's looking for buildings that I just find to be beautiful. And of course, buildings always are way more beautiful in a photograph 
right, when they're finished than when you go visit them, or, or funny. So there's also a level of humor, or, you know, looking for buildings that are also like everyday objects. So, you know, like a kind of colossal, I mean, Klaus Oldenburg is obviously like a huge kind of reference or inspiration for me, but, you know, that he would kind of take everyday objects and draw them and label them as proposals for buildings, you know, never really showing the interior of them. But he also had a kind of large collection of objects that was the Mouse Museum. Yeah, I, I mean, I do reflect on what I collect, but it's, I, it, yeah, it's, it's not as easy to, it's, there are many different facets of it, but I guess maybe, I should maybe probably make a more rigorous, like, list as to, or kind of categorization of what it, what, what, what it is I'm actually looking for. We noticed that Andrew seems to have an affinity for things that relate to a known cultural stereotype, like a donut shape or a wedding cake-like form, something nameable. His work can be seen in relation to Charles Jenks' claims that things can't be just functional. They'll always be condemned to meaning. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I appreciate it at that level, but then I also maybe wonder, like, could that be more perverse? Like, when you see, like, a Klaus Oldenburg proposal for a giant fire hydrant as a work of architecture, and, you know, he never really tells you what that means in a way, but, like, does that mean that there's a... that it really is a fire hydrant scaled up to the size of a building so that if you went in there, there would be this incredible atrium with, like, water flowing down on you. Like, I think that would be... And then, you know, part, part of that comes also from a trip that I took to Kazakhstan at one point where the buildings, the new, all these new buildings in the new capital city, Astana, had these funny nicknames. And one of them was nicknamed the cigarette lighter and the ashtray. And only after it was nicknamed the cigarette lighter did it go up in flames, not once, but twice, because of poor construction standards. Not because it was actually meant to go up on fire, but it was an accident. But like that somehow that nickname or the name became part of a perverse reality. I can appreciate the kind of making the associations that something is like something else. But I wonder if those associations like really taken to a kind of extreme or literal level might also offer, a, and not in all cases, but in some cases, or like sometimes I think you can imagine it this way, that like you would actually imagine that it would be a really new type of space. Like that, you know, I mean, a fire hydrant at the scale of a skyscraper, if it really was like flowing with water, I think would kind of be pretty magnificent. Andrew's browsing methods resonate with the story about Walter Benjamin, that he would go to a library and rather than seeking out a specific book, he would browse the return shelf, going through the things that others had left behind. Looking through archive of affinities, one gets the impression that in a similar way, Andrew seeks out the leftovers or the b-sides scouring his world for the things that other people had left behind. I'll go to a place where there's a lot of books, known as a library or a used bookstore, <laughs> and I will just pick up books that I haven't seen before or that maybe I've seen something like the name before or something, and you know, it will be as sort of many as you can carry at once, and then it, I will flip through them looking for things that I appreciate or like. And so, you know, the, there's a really nice thing that happens sometimes. So sometimes, because they're very different books from different times, and then I'll, I'll scan them. But, you know, one, one, one point when I was doing this, something really nice happened that 
uh, I scanned three, or three images from three different books, and just by chance, they, you, could, you could read them as the framework for an entirely new project. So it was a sketch by Tony Smith called Monster, and then a sculpture by uh, Mary Martin called White Diamond, and then the plan of Jeffersonsville, Indiana. So three things from three different times that have absolutely nothing to do with each other, but you could almost read the Tony Smith sketch for a sculpture. If you aggregate it, it would make up the sculpture or a block of white diamond, which could then, which would be the aggregate, which could then be deployed in the master plan that is Jeffersonsville, Indiana. So th th that's a kind of nice thing for me that somehow these things are already kind of related in, in, in one way, either at a kind of, that, that's maybe a little bit more of a kind of conceptual chance game there, but then sometimes that, you know, that, that certain buildings from the past have a certain kind of affinity, at least in their formal characteristics or organizational characteristics as other, as more contemporary buildings today. And so for me, that starts to suggest some kind of a discipline. Earlier in the conversation, Andrew made a distinction between crate digging and shelf browsing. We asked him to elaborate on that. Well, because, you know, crate digging is uh, for a term for records. So, and, I mean, and maybe it's because you're looking in a crate down. Uh, so shelf browsing, you have to kind of like rotate your head to the side and kind of, you know, um, <laughs> there's, there's a, a, a difference there. And then you have to pull the book out and flip through it. So I don't know. I mean, I, they're, they're kind of the same thing in, in that I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know much about crate digging, but I think a crate digger is also looking for something that, they, that they've never seen before, which means they've never heard before. Right. They're looking they're looking for a record that they've, they that they've, they've never seen because ostensibly there is music on there that they've never heard. We then asked about the differences between the physical acts of crate digging and shelf browsing versus browsing the internet. I think there is a, a difference between just like, I mean, you would call it surfing the web. And as you know, that would be a sort of endless uh, tunnel where it's uh, kind of links or uh, you see something and then you search for that and then you search for something else. Both probably have a kind of element of like a chance encounter or a fortunate encounter. In, in, in the physical world, maybe there's a, a higher degree that you'll come across something that you've never seen before that's sort of been discarded or uh, overlooked. Part of it, there's also a kind of boredom aspect that I'm, I'm bored with stuff, so I have to go find new stuff. <laughs> so, you know, no one goes to libraries anymore, so there's lots of stuff in libraries. It's like less of an adventure just to be on the internet. There, there's also the real world, too. Like in the, for example, that that's a great story about the return section because you'll find something that, that there will there will be books from every kind of topic or discipline in there. So there's a higher, let's say, higher degree of maybe coming across something new by chance, going to a library than maybe on the internet. I think I mean that's not I mean it's not to say that you can come across something new on the internet very easily. You can come across something new, but I think that. It's still kind of within one's own uh, preferences. So it's already, it's, it's less that something random appears in front of you at the 
return section or in a different section at the library. But I think on the internet, there's you've already kind of pre-curated what you might see or what you might find. You've been listening to a conversation on collecting. Interviews were conducted by Joseph Bedford, Kurt Gambetta, Mark Achari, Joanna Grant, and Kevin Pazik between 2014 and 2015. Produced for the third issue of Attention, the audio journal for architecture, in 2016 by Griffin Ofish.